Uh, yes, we are starting a new book of the Bible today, which is very exciting because it's been two years since we've decided to do that, um, since we finished uh, started Romans back in April 21. Um, if you're new here or you've only been coming from a little while, it's helpful for me to say this. This is one of our big convictions as a church, uh, that we preach our way through books of the Bible mainly as our main thing we do in our teaching at the church. Uh, and there's a very good reason for that. Uh, the, the conviction comes from this. We believe, we truly believe that what you don't need is just to hear me and Matt's kind of two cents worth on, uh, on the week, uh, you know, our reflections on the week or, you know, Matt's super awkward humor. Um, <laughs> or maybe you do need those things as well. I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that what we need more than those things is to hear the voice of God in his word. Because we believe that the word of God itself possesses a power and a truth and a life-changing quality that is found absolutely nowhere else. So it is imperative we open up the book and we get into the book. And working our way through books of the Bible also helps us uh, stay away from, I guess, just me and Matt just preaching on our favorite stuff every week. Right? Jump on our hobby horse and we just, you just hear what we like uh, every single week. And so preaching through books makes us wrestle with things that we wouldn't otherwise bring up, we wouldn't think to bring up. And so uh, that's why we do preaching through books of the Bible. And today we are starting a new study in the book of Nehemiah. Yes, you might need to unstick those pages in your Bible. Um, I don't know if you've ever had that, like the, the gilding on the edge, you have to like peel it. It's quite satisfying, actually. You might need to do that for Nehemiah. Um, how to get to Nehemiah, this is my rule of thumb. The biggest book in the Bible, 150 changes, chapters, is Psalms. It's pretty easy to find Psalms, somewhere near the middle, right? Find Psalms and start flicking backwards. Psalms, flick backwards, you'll hit Proverbs. Flick backwards, you'll hit Job. Flick backwards, you'll hit Esther. Esther, you're getting close, right? It's the next one. Uh, Esther's, Esther's shortest, and then it's Nehemiah. So go to, go to Psalms, flick backwards, open to the middle, and flick back until you find it. It's not far. That's how I do it, at least. Uh, it's a fairly short book. It's 13 chapters long, but I believe it is full of instruction for us. And actually, we'll find, I believe it'll, we'll find it incredibly relevant to where we are today. Cards on the table, just up front when I say this. I'm very excited for Nehemiah. I am very excited for it. And there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one of those reasons is at the core of the book, it is about responding to the call of God on our lives and following him in faith. It's about hearing his call and hearing what it is we have to give our lives to and then in faith following him into that adventure of faith. Uh, the mega theme of the book is rebuilding. It's a book about rebuilding. Uh, the story itself tracks Nehemiah and his mission to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, which still lies in ruins after 140 years since the Babylonians leveled the place. And so on a literal level, it's a story of Nehemiah rebuilding some city walls. It's like, it's pretty cool, but like, so what? <laughs> we'll find out, so what? Actually, can I just point out, um, we might be the very first church to ever preach Nehemiah without doing a building project. Um, <laughs> or at a leadership conference, because that, those are the two contexts where Nehemiah will get wheeled out. <laughs> um, and look, for good reason. Nehemiah is like the quintessential leadership handbook 
in the Bible. So like it's got some things to say about leadership for sure. And of course, how is it not relevant to a building project? Of course it is. So look, I'm, I'm not anti those things. If, 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 if churches do that, that's fine. I'm not sassing them at all. Um, I think it's a great thing to do to let the word of God speak into specific areas of life. Yes, that's good. Um, but all I'm saying is we didn't go to Nehemiah for that reason. We've turned there for no reason at all, really. <laughs> because it was time to do Nehemiah. And so, look, I'm, I find that quite exciting because it's just like we're in a situation where we just want to, Lord, just speak to us through this book. I'm not coming with like a, I'm trying to get you guys on board with the building project we got down the pipeline. Um, Lord, speak to us through Nehemiah. We want to hear what you have to say through, through these book. And so I'm excited as to what he might say to us and what he might call us to build together. Is that exciting? Lord, what are you going to say to us? What are you going to say to us? So I'm excited about heading into Nehemiah with a real sense of anticipation and a real sense of, I don't know what he's going to do here. Um, when we started the book of Romans, for example, I, I was very excited about that too. However, I knew what was coming. I knew we were going to be diving deep into the gospel and what it means and that theological wrestle and theology at depth. And so I kind of knew what to expect, but with Nehemiah... I don't know what he's going to do here. And that gives me a sense of anticipation and a sense of excitement. Holy Spirit, what are you going to teach us in this book? And so over the next 11 weeks, one of the, the questions that I want you to have kind of rattling around in your brain, uh, that's been rattling around in my brain as we do this study in Nehemiah, is the question, Lord, what are the walls that you're calling us to rebuild? Lord, what is, what is our wall at Inogra? What is, our, what is my wall in my life that you've called me to give my life to? What is the, the great work of God that he is calling us all into as a church? And so this has been one of my big prayers and my big kind of, Lord, show me what it is you're going to lead us into. What are you going to say to us? What, what work are you going to put in front of our eyes that we might see and follow you into? And so can I just encourage you to be praying that prayer with me? I can just imagine, imagine if our church, if everyone in our church was praying that prayer, Lord, show us what work you have ahead of us. Wonder what he would show us together. And so I encourage you to join me in that prayer. In fact, let's pray right now as we start our time this morning. Father, as I said, we believe that we truly need your word. Lord, um, Jesus tells us, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so today, we ask that you would feed us. Feed us by your word. Use Nehemiah by your spirit to teach us, to guide us, to lead us into a new work of rebuilding for your glory. Lord, we know that unless the worker, unless the, uh, unless the Lord builds the house, the workers labor in vain. Lord, and so I pray that you keep us from laboring in futility for those things that do not last, those things that will not stand for eternity. But show us the works. Show us the works, Lord where we might labor for your glory and within your will. And so, our Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us through these next 11 weeks or so. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things.
Amen. Amen. Uh, back in 2019, try cast your mind back there. Uh, the world was a simpler place uh, in 2019. But what happened in 2019 is one of the most anticipated movies of all time hit the cinemas. After something like 20 movies of build-up, we had Avengers Endgame. Right? The big purple baddie Thanos with the big chin uh, killing half the universe to bring balance. That was, that was basically the basic premise. Um, spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> It's been four years, and if you didn't start now, you've missed that boat, right? Which brings me to my next point. (laughs) Thank you, Ben. Imagine going into that movie without knowing that there was 20 movies of build-up, and sitting there and being like, am I supposed to understand any of this? Like, what what is going on? I'm sure there's plenty of people that were just like, big movie, let's go see it, and then there's no idea what is happening the whole time. Why does this guy have such a big purple chin? No one knows. It's, when you think about it, it's pretty amazing what they managed to pull off, like the, the, the size of that franchise. And like, what do you do after that, apparently? <laughs> no one knows. No one knows at Marvel what to do after that either. Um, but in the same way, right, it's important to understand in the book of Nehemiah, we're not, it's not, it wasn't written in a vacuum, and this story doesn't exist in a vacuum. There is, so to speak, 20 movies of build-up to get to this point here. And so um, there's a much, much, much bigger story about the people of God we need to have our heads around to understand why Nehemiah is important. Otherwise, it'll just literally just go straight over our heads. And so we've got 11 weeks in this series. And my job today, as much as possible, is to help us get to grips with the big story, the big picture, where it fits in the kind of timeline of things and so I like to think of today as um, I'm kind of like setting the table for the banquet to come over the next few weeks. And so today we're, we're, we're place setting. That's what we're doing. Let's start at it first one. We'll get straight into the text and we'll see uh, who, who's there, when, where, etc. cetera. Uh, firstly, this is the start of the book of Nehemiah. These are the words of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is writing this. This is his journal, so to speak, his memoir. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. So we'll just, just to, we'll stop there just to get our heads around what's happening. On the first verse, we meet our central figure. Surprise, surprise, it's a guy called Nehemiah, which he got from the book, the title of the book, I'm sure. Who is Nehemiah? Yes. Yes, if you're paying attention like Lucy, you would know the answer to that. He's the son of Hakaliah, guys, as if you didn't know that. He's the son of Hakaliah. Okay, next question. <laughs> Who's Hakaliah? No one knows. <laughs> uh, no one. We, have, we generally don't know who Hakaliah was. And so um, Nehemiah, he's this guy who, apart from being the son of Hakaliah, we don't know anything about him. He just kind of comes out of nowhere, and then he doesn't get mentioned again in the Bible. And so, like, the New Testament doesn't mention him either. So he's this guy that kind of shows up and then vanishes in, in terms of the big story. Um, what we do know from verse 11 of the first chapter is that he is the cupbearer to the king. He's the cupbearer to the king. The king, that is, is King Artaxerxes, the ruler of Persia. King Artaxerxes, you've got to be confident on the first go, Um, the ruler of the Persian Empire. Now, the role of the cupbearer is actually no small job in the ancient world because to be the cupbearer, you need 
100% trust from the emperor. Because what's your job? You taste the food. And if you die, you die, and the king doesn't die, and then you get a new cupbearer. If you're the king, you want to trust your cupbearer is not going to poison you. And so in the ancient world, the cupbearer is actually, he's, like it's, a, it's not a great title, but it's a great gig, except for the impending doom uh, at all times. Yeah, you, you, might, you might die at any time. Apart from that, right, um, it's a pretty good gig. You're, you're, you've got access to the most powerful men in the world at this time. The Persian Empire was massive at this time. And so if you want to assassinate the king, yeah, you want to put some poison in his food, you've got to go through Nehemiah first. And so the king needs someone he can trust, 100% trust. So he's a, he's a trusted aide to the king whose role it is is to eat the food and to try and keep the king alive. And that is a pretty intense job. And so here's, here's Nehemiah, a Jewish guy, a Jewish guy in the Persian capital of Susa, in the citadel, in the inner circle of the emperor. How on earth did he get there? <laughs> we don't actually know how he got there at all. He's a bit like Daniel in, in the Old Testament as well, in exile, and a bit like Mordecai and Esther, these, these people who, who are exiled Jews and yet find themselves at the very top of the inner circle of the, king, the running of the, of the kingdom that they're living in. And it's a bit of a, you know, it's miraculous that they managed to make it there. And so the question is, how did Nehemiah, a Jew, end up within the inner circle of the Persian emperor. How did he get there? This is, this is where the backstory becomes really important as to how the Jews ended up in Persia in the first place. What had happened 500 years before Nehemiah, so again, think of like what happened 500 years ago from us, 1523, right? So we're talking a good long time. This is ancient history to Nehemiah in the same way that the 1500s is ancient history to us. 500 years ago, the kingdom of Israel split into two. So the 12 tribes of Israel split into two. The, the top 10 tribes, good luck reading that. Um, the top, top 10 tribes, the northern kingdom, uh, they kept their, their name, Israel, and it went off the rails 200 years, 250 years later. Well, straight away, really. But it, it, it ended up getting destroyed by the Assyrians after going into all kinds of idolatry. And they, uh, that happened in 722. So a good 250 years after the split, they kind of existed, but they were never doing well. They were exist existing in a permanent state of apostasy, really, uh, in the northern kingdom. The south, the, the southern two tribes, which went by the, the name of Judah, they held out for a lot longer. They had a couple of good kings that tried to bring about worship of God once more. But eventually they fell to the Babylonian Empire in 586 was the final sacking of the city where they burnt the place to the ground. There's a number of sieges, uh, but that was the one where they finally, fully and finally, destroyed the temple, destroyed the walls of the city, leveled the place, burned the city. And what the, what the Babylonians would do, um, what they would do when they defeated a nation, as they were growing their empire, when they would crush a nation, what they would do is they would gut the people. They would, they would neuter them, basically, by taking the, uh, the upper and middle class away to their, to their nation and then turn them into peasants. They were dirt farmers in, in Babylon, and that was their place in the world. And they would leave the poor behind to kind of fight away the jackals. And it was just this devastating thing that they would do. And, 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 and by doing that, they would just ruin the identity of, of this people. And uh, what they did is they, yeah, they burnt the city of Jerusalem to the ground. They 
turn the, t- the, the temple into a pile of rubble. And so here you have the Israelites, the Jews, in exile. In exile, living with this crushed city and this crushed dream. Their, their life was ripped apart because of their persistent sin. I don't know if you've ever kind of walked through a season of your life where it felt like God wasn't there, that he had abandoned you. It felt like your prayers were just bouncing off the ceiling. If you've ever had that experience, uh, maybe that's where you are right now, honestly, and, and life is turned upside down and you're asking the question, God, how, where are you in all this? Aren't you supposed to be my protector, my fortress, my, my shield? Aren't you supposed to be here? Aren't you supposed to answer my prayers for help? And this is, this, is where the, this is where the exiles were. Uh, Psalm 137 gives us an insight into the sense of pure, the pure God-forsakenness that they were experiencing. Now, you're going to have to do your best to not sing the Boney M song in the back of your mind here because <laughs> they get the tone so wrong. <laughs> it's bouncy. It's not helpful. Uh, this is a song of pure sorrow. Um, this is what... Psalm 130 says, written by the exiles in Babylon. It says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion, which is the name for the city of Jerusalem. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, our instruments. For there our captors required of us songs, our tormentors, mirth, saying, Sing us one of your songs of Zion. So the Babylonians are saying, guys, sing us your songs. You've got some great songs. Sing us some of your upbeat songs. And what's their answer? How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How on earth are we supposed to praise God here, like this, after what we've been through, after the way he's cast us off? Have you ever, have you ever come into church? And the music started, and maybe they're singing Rejoice, something like that. And you're like, I don't know if I can do that today. I'm not sure I have it in me to sing these words because of what's going on in my life. I'm not sure I can even go there today. This is exactly what the exiles are feeling, feeling God forsaken. Of course, God hasn't forsaken them at all, has they? Has he? Fast forward from the exile, the exiles in, in Babylon, to Nehemiah's day, 445 BC. So we're jumping forwards quite, quite a way forwards now. Uh, this story of Nehemiah is actually the last thing that happens in the entire of the Old Testament. This is the last events. So there's no more history that happens after Nehemiah. It's, the next thing that happens in the story is actually angels coming to two ladies and telling them they're having, uh, having baby boys. Two miraculous, one immaculate, the other one just an old lady. Go read Luke 1, you'll see. Spoilers. <laughs> Fast forward to, to Nehemiah's day, and Babylon is now gone. The Persian Empire, they're now the big, the big boys on the block in the, in the ancient Near East. Uh, this is the size of the Persian Empire. If you could get a scale of that, it is absolutely outrageous that that's how big that empire was. It was huge. Um, the yeah, the Persians and the Medes basically formed a coalition and they, yeah, they conquered Babylon and they kept going. And um, 
So it's a massive empire at the time. This is round about the time of um, you know, the 300 movie. <laughs> uh, it was, that was not far uh, removed from this. Um, but basically 100 years prior to Nehemiah, so 100 years before this point, the exiles were actually let home. So what happened is 100 years prior, of 539, the Persians under Cyrus the Great, it's pretty cool in history when you can give yourself names like the Great, and so, uh, yeah, anyway, he did that. He was, Persia, he was uh, Cyrus the Great, and he defeated the Babylonians, and he absorbed all their territory into his own, into their own. And then what Cyrus did is he said to the Israelites, you can go home. He, he had a different way of dealing. He wanted to be, that's why he's the, the good new boss, right? The new boss comes in and is like, we're going to reverse some of the dodgy policies of the last guy and get some goodwill here, right? And so that's what he did. He reversed the, the, the policy of the Babylonians, and he allowed them all to go home, which is amazing, wonderful news. And so the book of Ezra, which precedes Nehemiah, it's actually originally one book, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, they're now two books in our Bible. Book of Nehemiah, uh, the book of Ezra tells the story of the first wave of exiles going back after Cyrus said, you guys are free to go now. You can, you can head back. And so the book of Ezra tells us that story under the leadership of a guy named Zerubbabel which is a fun name as well. Any pregnant ladies looking for a boy name? Zerubbabel. Zeru for short, maybe. I don't know. Um, and it was his heart. It was his desire to go back and do, the, and, he, and in his, his mind, the first thing the Israelites had to do, the first things the exiles had to do, is rebuild the temple. And so uh, Zerubbabel led the, led the building project to, to reinstate the temple and the temple worship. And after some serious blood, sweat, and tears, they managed to finish the temple uh, years and years and years later, far, about 20 years later in, in uh, 516. The next wave comes under the leadership of a guy named Ezra. And there's a second major wave of, of exiles that come back in 458 BC. And Ezra, this guy, he's a, he's a Bible teacher. He's a preacher. He's a, he's a Torah scholar. And it's under his teaching and under his ministry of, of teaching the people the, the word that there's this great spiritual renewal among the exiles back in Jerusalem. And they come underneath the Bible together, they come underneath the word together, and there's this spiritual renewal that happens. And yet, of course, there's, there's more difficulties, more setbacks, more resistance. Which brings us finally to Nehemiah, the third wave of exiles coming back to Jerusalem. Uh, and that's another 14 years later. And we get the... So that, that, that's where Nehemiah sits. And just to go back to the start, uh, the words of Nehemiah happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. So you just got to get it into your head. When Nehemiah is asking the question, tell me about Jerusalem, he's asking the question to a, in, in the situation that the, the city was destroyed 140 years ago. So for where Nehemiah is sitting, the destruction was 140 years ago. And there's been two waves that have gone back. One of them was 100 years ago. Okay? There was a wave 194 uh, years since the exiles went with Zerubbabel. 70 years since the temple's been up and uh, the temple's been standing for 70 years now. And so basically for his whole life, for Nehemiah, for his whole life, the exiles have been back, the temple's been standing, 
everything's back to normal, right? And he says, how's things going back in Jerusalem? And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, in a sense, that is not news. Again, this happened 140 years ago. What his brother is saying is this. The place remains in rubble. It's still rubble. After all this time, it's still rubble. And people that are living there, they're suffering because this place is unlivable. Back in in 2006, I spent the year living in Christchurch. Loved it. Beautiful place. I highly recommend going to visit. Um, And then I moved back to Brisbane in 2007. So I spent a whole year there, made lots of friends. I still remember hearing about the earthquakes back in 2010 and 11. Um, Looking at the photos, it's pretty horrendous. 185 people died. So it was a pretty horrific thing. So many parts of the city are just unlivable now because of liquefaction. Um, Horrendous. I I visited the city the next year. So I went back to see it and... um, just the, the amount of differences. It's, it's, it's hard to describe. My old house that I used to live in was covered up with d- uh, demolition tape. It was due for demolition. So to see my old house kind of like you know, being tape, taped off and waiting for being knocked over, it was, it was quite a horrible experience. So that's one thing, to kind of experience, see the destruction and be grieved by the destruction. But imagine if years later, years and years and years later, I find out that there's still no running water, Still no internet, still no electricity, still no police force. It's like, that disaster happened forever ago, and we're still, there's still, the people that are still suffering, the basic things that you need to live in a city aren't there, but there's still people trying to live there. This is what Nehemiah is hearing, right? For, for, a, for an ancient city like Jerusalem, the wall It's hard for us to kind of get, but a wall is essential. A wall is like the most basic level of security a city needs to stop random bands of raiders coming through the place. It's the basic level of safety for a a city. And so Nehemiah hears this news from his brother. uh, Nehemiah, the place is still unlivable. 140 years later. It's been 94 years since the exiles went back. It's still a mess. This is why we read chapter uh, verse 4. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for about half an hour. No. Sat down and wept and mourned for days. Days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah hears this news from his brother about the state of his city, and it just breaks him. Just breaks him. It utterly breaks him. He falls down. Have you ever received news so bad you just couldn't even stand up anymore? He sat down. He He lost all sense of himself, and he just enters into this profound season of mourning grief. Look at what he did. He sits down. He weeps. He mourns. He fasts. He prays. 
you might be wondering, who on earth cares that much about uh, their hometown? Guys, Nehemiah had probably never even been to Jerusalem. He'd probably never even been there. I just think of my, like, my own situation. I, my family's from South Africa. My mother, we immigrated to Australia when my mother was eight months pregnant with me, which makes me an Australian by this much. So I was born... I was born in a country in New South Wales where my auntie and uncle lived. We were living on the couches. I, was, I didn't get a bassinet. I got a fruit box and a pillow because um, my family had three kids and I was the fourth. Um, and so, but I just think about my like, relationship with South Africa. I've never even been there. That's my, that's, that's, that's my heritage. Never even been there. Why? Because I don't know a soul there. I have no friends there. I have no family there that I've met. I have no real attachment to the country I'd like have some, obviously, but it's not like it's Australia's my home, well and truly. There's just nothing for me over there. Nehemiah, on the other hand, born and raised in Persia, Persia's his home. And yet, Jerusalem's his home, isn't it? He has this deep connection with the city of Jerusalem and the land back in Israel in a way that I just don't have with my, my heritage. So what's the difference between us? In the Old Testament, there's this running thread, this deep connection to the land itself. It's called the promised land, isn't it? Israel was the promised land. It was the land that God had given to them. And so there's this intertwined relationship between the promises of God, the blessing of God, and the physical land. And so there's a strong attachment to the city in particular, the picture of Jerusalem thriving and God's blessing. They're just they're hand in hand for the Jews, okay? And so this, the city sitting in ruins, for them, is a picture of God's punishment on them. And we see all of this, this deep love for the land and the passion for the land come out in his response. Nehemiah is just broken. It's, it seems as if it seems as if the weight of all that was wrong, the weight of all that was broken in the world, just all of a sudden just hits him. Just all lands in him at once. Everything. And it just sends him to his knees. It just hits him at once, and he's just overwhelmed with grief for the state of the world. I think this morning, God might be reminding us of something. We, we mustn't shut down to all that is broken in the world. We mustn't shut down and shut off to all that is wrong and broken in the world because it's it's easy thing to do. It's easier to do. I'm not sure if you relate to this, but um, because of the internet, we now have access to every single disaster and tragedy that happens every day around the whole world, and we we see it. We we can it's. Like, we have access to that every single day. There's another tragedy. There's wars. There's landslides. There's earthquakes all the time. And there's too much for us to keep track of, let alone let it kind of affect us. So because of that, we just shut down a bit. We harden ourselves to it so it doesn't hurt us so much because there's too much of it. If you wanted to, you could go the other way, right? If you wanted to, you could actually drown yourself in the amount of suffering that you have access to. You really could. 
I don't think that honors God. I don't think God would have us do that. There is a limit to what we can experience. There's a limit to what we can, the amount of like sorrow we can let into our hearts, I think. And so we must be wise and careful not to overwhelm ourselves. So that's my caveat. Don't drown yourself in the bad news of the world. But I think what, as we sit and look at Nehemiah's response, the, the size of his response, the emotional gravity of his response, I think we've, just, we've got to be aware of the temptation to harden ourselves. Be aware of the temptation to harden ourselves. To you know, We've all seen enough Oxfam ads of the, of the you know, starving children in Africa and enough news of earthquakes and whatever around the world that it's, it's easy to almost stop caring entirely. Have you ever got there? <laughs> I just can't allow myself to feel anything about that tragedy today. I think if we want to be like our saviour Jesus, I'm going to take him as our template for what we should do. I think if we're going to follow our saviour Jesus, we have to actually remove from the table the option of not caring. We have to allow ourselves to feel. I think it's amazing in the Gospels we see Jesus do exactly that. We see him grieve on a number of occasions. For example, in John 11, when he arrives to see the family of Lazarus after Jesus, after Lazarus had passed away, uh, his family's in mourning. And Jesus arrives there, and they're all, you know, in a state of deep distress because of the death of Lazarus. Jesus is on his way to, to raise him from the dead. What he doesn't do is high-five the family and say, guys, I'm here, let me go do this thing, I'll raise him from the dead. He doesn't do that. Before he goes, does that miracle, do you know what he does? He enters into the sorrow of the family. He sits there with them and weeps with them. Why is Jesus weeping? He knows what he's about to do. He knows that in 10 seconds, everyone's going to be laughing. And their, their sorrow will be turned to joy. He knows that. What are you even crying over? You can fix this, Jesus. Go fix it. But he doesn't just jump to the solution, does he? He sits with the family first and he cries with them. He grieves with them. He grieves. He, he even allows himself to grieve the loss of his friend, the death of his friend. That shouldn't be. We see Jesus weep on another occasion as well, on Palm Sunday. A week before Easter, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. He's welcomed as a king and crucified the next week. This is what he says. That's what it says in Luke. When he drew near and he saw the city, when he saw Jerusalem, when he saw the, the, the walls that Nehemiah had built, he wept over it, saying, Would you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? If only you knew that this destruction could be avoided, Jerusalem. In 70 AD, the Romans would flatten Jerusalem once again. The temple would be destroyed. It's never been rebuilt since then. There was, I saw figures this week. There's talk about like a million Jews being killed that day. Massive slaughter because they tried to rebel against the Romans, and you don't do that. Jesus knew that was coming 40 years from his time, so a couple of decades away from him. But he drew near and he saw the city and he weeps. Jerusalem, if only you knew that this could be avoided. <laughs> On the same day, he said this in, in, in the book of Matthew. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. See the grief in his voice? I would have gathered you like a mother hen. You're not willing. It's hardness. Jesus is grieving over the hardness of this city. He's grieved that he came for his people to gather them, and they crucified him. It grieves the heart of Jesus. It grieves the heart of Jesus. Friends, look around the world today. Do you not think that Jesus is grieved by the way he's treated, by the way his name is, is tarnished? Do you not think he's grieved by the way he's been rejected by this world? To bring it home even more, do you not think that he is grieved by the modern day church? The uh, men, child sexual abuse cover ups. Can you imagine the grief of our God by people who are supposed to represent him? Those false teachers with their private jets. Does that not grieve our God? I could go on. It grieves our God. What if today God wants to do what he did to Nehemiah and he wants to re-break our hearts for all that is broken? in this world? What if he wants to do what he did to Nehemiah and send us to our knees in prayer, in earnest prayer? I think it's then and only then that we begin to be the kind of people who can actually build a wall, so to speak. It's only then that we can be, be used by God to rebuild what's broken. We've got to go to our knees first. It starts with prayer. It starts with opening up to the heart of God. It starts with the prayer, Lord, break my heart for what breaks yours. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you see the shadows deepen? We do. But we see our Savior too, don't we? I think there's two things we need to do today. Two things I'm calling us to as a church. First thing is today. I think we, we shouldn't leave this room without praying that the Lord opens up our hearts, that we might know what's in his heart, that we might catch a glimpse, that we might, we might feel just a drop of the sorrow of our God, that we pray to have our hearts opened up to his, that we might have the same heartbeat. We might feel as he feels. So afterwards, I'm going to just give us a couple of minutes just to pray that the Lord would, would send us to our knees. Secondly, second thing I think we need to do today is carve out some space as a church to do this together. I think we need to go there together. I think we, if, again, if we're going to learn from Nehemiah, I think we need to, I think we need to go there together. So, in two and a half weeks, I was going to put it next week, but 
equip. So the next, the week after equip, May 17th, Wednesday night, we're going to cancel small groups that week, and we're just going to come and pray. And we're going to pray for our city, pray for our world, pray for our hearts, that they might be opened up to the heart of God. I think if there's one thing that we're going to take from the book of Nehemiah, it's that everything starts with prayer. Everything starts with prayer. We had that prayer meeting on the seventh, uh, on the seventeenth of May. There, as well as that, we have a weekly prayer meeting every week. I think we need to start prioritizing that as a church. Me and Sally were a bit lonely this morning. I'd love to have you come join and pray. Nine o'clock in the morning next week, four o'clock in the afternoon. I th- we just got to push in together, church. We really do. Everything starts with prayer. Everything that we read that flows out of this book, all the great works of rebuilding that Nehemiah achieves, it all starts with his, him on his knees, broken for the city. So let's go there together as well. In fact, we'll talk about this next week, but Nehemiah spends more time in prayer at the start of the book than he does building the wall. So it's not really a build, book about building a wall, it's a book about praying, isn't it? Before action, let us pray. So, I'm going to give you some space now to pray. I'm going to invite the, the, the band to come up. They're going to play some music in the background for a bit. And then I'll pray for us and we'll, we'll sing. Uh, but for now, I want you to spend a couple of minutes in prayer. Praying for your own heart. Thanks. Thanks.